Hi, and welcome to Real Clear Fetish Talks Real Clear Play, a podcast that deals with sober life, kink life, and fetish life, and everything in between. This week, we are going to Norway to talk to Andreas, who works with Chem Friendly. Hi, Andreas. Hello, hello. How are you, Ralph? I'm very well, and you? I'm good, thank you. You're lucky that I'm kind of an attention whore who's running back and forth in the cold of Oslo to do this. Yeah, we, we, we had a couple of technical issues at the start of the episode, <laughs> but we think we've solved it now. So we are up and running and we're recording. So as with all episodes, I start with four standard questions and we'll just see where the conversation goes from there. Sure. Uh, what do you prefer I call you name, pronouns and title? Right, so my name is Andreas Vetanger, uh, he, him are my pronouns, and I'm the chairman of the board of Camp Friendly Norway. Fantastic. So I'll just call you chairman the whole way through. Sure. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Right, so I'm 37 years old, the uh, gay man uh, living in Oslo. I'm a social educator, which is kind of like an in-between nurse and a social worker. I work for Oslo Municipality, a safe consumption house, and public emergency public housing and I also uh, work for the sex workers rights organization so I'm sitting in their office right now um, living with HIV since 2006 done quite a bit of community activism here in Oslo both for sex workers rights uh, HIV positive people's rights and LGBT and uh, now in camp friendly drug users rights and harm reduction harm prevention information and other than that i think if we're talking about fetishes the closest things to mind is being an exhibitionist i guess so that that is a fetish as well and i know quite a few exhibitionists um i'm probably a little bit myself as one as well at least when i'm at parties and so on um completely sober clear-headed or a social drinker uh, yeah, so um, I'm very uh, happy that I am able to enjoy alcohol when I'm social with other people or at a sex club. I like to take one or two drinks to relax a little bit before the action goes on. And I'm very lucky because I come from a family with uh, alcohol problems. So it was kind of like a 50-50 or if I would have problems with alcohol or not. And the other camps are kind of out of the question for me, so I'm happy to have this camp to go to. Fantastic. What is clear play to you and why is it important? Yeah, that's uh, where we... Uh, that's where we got to last time, yes. Yes, exactly. So what is sober play? Yeah, sober play, yeah. Yeah, so, um, well, I'm very lucky because I've had my fair share of chemsex experience, um, also with crystal meth, and um, have some addiction issues towards that uh, drug. And I know other people who have had a lot of chemsex, and their brain makes this connection between sex and chems, typically uh, methamphetamine, because it's it creates a high dopamine release in your brain. Uh, but for me, chemsex was always something that was an addition to a sober sex life that I enjoy. So mm-hmm. I didn't have to reinvent my sober sex life. And I can now say that one of the uh, things, uh, 
who I am as a sexual person is also because of some good experiences from chemsex. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's it's important that yes, I think it's very important when when you're talking about chemsex and so on. It's not around, going around it's like it's all bad and you're gonna end up an addict. Blah, 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 blah. That's not always the case. So it it is like charity like Chem Friendly is is so important because they can give tools so people don't hurt themselves. Yeah, right. So we started up as. Um... A group of activists. We were cis and trans men who uh, launched ourselves in during Oslo Pride 2018. And as queer guys, we're, we're we have some relationship with camps. You know, either we've done it ourselves or somebody we know done it. It's kind of like being queer is also about drugs or intoxication, at least. Um, and we knew that there are uh, challenges. Um, potential challenges and we thought okay we want to prevent others from going through the same shit that some of us have gone through and the only way to do that is talking about uh, drugs and uh, having a fact-based approach to drugs uh, talking about the different risks connected to the different drugs and how you can reduce those risks what brought you to help did you help set up the charity as well so yeah, I'm kind of like the, um, the it was my idea. Basically. It was your idea. Okay. So what, yeah. what brought, brought, what brought that on for you to like, I need to, we need to create this. We need to offer some support to the local community when it comes to drug use. What triggered you wanting to do that? Uh, good question. I just remember that I just thought that, oh, we should uh, get a group of drag artists go to the gay bars and do some infotainment and talk about drugs because of course we should talk about drugs. I mean, sure. Like, I, and that's kind of like also with my sex work activism, it's also like, of course we should do that. And I never mm. think that it's controversial or something. And, and I thought, okay, um, I know other people who might be interested in this and, um, I talked to them and some of them were involved in other harm reduction organizations. So already there was user equipment and information there that we could use. So we didn't need to invent the wheel again. And um, yeah, so I was just, it's, I just like to talk about this sex and drugs basically. And I thought, okay, let's do this. It's, it's like here in London, we have London Friend as an organization. We also have Antidote and we also have a charity con called, called Controlling Chemsex, which is purely online. Um, and of course, we also had, well, the one who actually kind of coined the concept of chemsex, uh, the late David Stewart, who was just like a pioneer when it comes to that um, and talking about it and being honest and open about it. And trying to not make it this big scary thing everyone thinks it is can it go wrong absolutely and like you mentioned earlier about you were lucky enough that your sex life wasn't connected to your drug using that's what happened to me i it took two years two years to make disconnect that from my sex drive almost giving up doing fetish doing sex more or less because that connection had made. So when you, you work with peer-to-peer uh, -peer, um, clients and so on in, in your charity, um, how, and this is 
my complete naivety because when I saw your charity on Instagram, I was just like, in Norway, is it is it such a big problem in Norway? Um, well, problem or well, phenomenon it, it, or whatever. Um, phenomenon or yeah, yeah, maybe the wrong word to use. Yeah. Well, I guess like queers do uh, typically in most uh, research do more drugs than uh, the majority population. Um, we have some few statistical, like quantitative data, um, which points out they're, they're from 2016. And then it was quite low uh, numbers compared to other European countries, uh, especially with, okay, like David Stewart, he, he had a very strong, uh, strict definition of chemsex only being mm. methamphetamine, GHB and methadone. Like in Camp-Friendly, we have a lot broader definition, and those quantitative studies also had a broader definition. But when it came to the hard drugs like crystal methamphetamine, it was a fairly small amount um, of the users in this study that said that they uh, used crystal meth. So it, it doesn't make sense to talk about a meth epidemic like they can, like you could reasonably talk about in the states, for example. Um, so it, it depends on how you define chemsex, but when it comes to the, no, it, it seems like it's relatively small here. Um, but after this study came, PrEP uh, is, had been rolled out for free. That may make young queers um, less afraid of taking risks. And maybe that makes chemsex more appealing. So we need new numbers to, 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 to see an updated picture. And I guess uh, what really defines Campsex is the ability to travel, and Norwegians love to travel. Gays mm. love to travel to Berlin, uh, Barcelona, Gran Canaria, where they're every year, you know. So, and that's so you take the drug trends with you. I would definitely, like, if I go on Grinder, you, I, I will expect to get uh, um, an alpha of Campsex. Yeah, it's very much the same here as well. It's it's uh, no mo most of my my profile will say I'm sober. So, but a lot of people don't read the text, so they're just kind of like H and H or P and P, depending on where you're from in the world. Um, and and then you kind of just like okay, well I'm sober, so we're not a match. That's fine, um, and move on. Um, sometimes that can be quite frustrating as a sober person. Absolutely. But yeah, it, it is it is about where we travel to. Definitely here in London, it's quite a big problem. How did you find, um, I know it's a long time since I've talked about this, but how did you find, um, I know you set up, uh, set up uh, Chem Friendly in 18. How did you find navigating like the pandemic? Because a lot of things, all of a sudden you're not leaving your house and there was quite a big spike of drug usage here? I don't know how it was in Norway. Yeah, so um, here, uh, you know, as, as other places, you couldn't go to work or a lot of people, I could go to work because I'm a healthcare professional, but a lot of people mm. couldn't. So the day-to-day -day routines were broken. And uh, that meant that uh, also when you, for some chemsex participants who limited their participation to when they went to Gran Canaria or Berlin. They didn't have that option. And mm -hmm. for some, that meant more uh, drug use here. 
Uh, some people, of course, uh, when the normal day-to-day -day routine started, adjusted back. Others did not. Um, again, we don't have any numbers, uh, but we could see um, that there was uh, changing in chemsex behavior because it became closer to home. You didn't have the day-to-day -day routines. Um, and we also had to reinvent how we talked about chem uh, harm reduction. For example, like the one, uh, one of the most important advices is like, don't do chems alone. Uh, but uh, during the pandemic, some people started doing, you know, online chem sex uh, because they didn't want to meet other people. So it kind of like, okay, but then people are doing chem sex alone. So we had to readjust the way we thought about chem uh, harm reduction. Yeah, it's, 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 I, re I remember the start of the pandemic, especially around this format, Zoom. Zoom used to be quite rife with uh, chemsex chat rooms. So it took me maybe like 10 days to get my head around using Zoom again, because I had completely deleted my account. I didn't have it on my phone. It was very triggering. But all of a sudden I went from using crystal meth and slamming on camera to doing game night with my friends on Zoom instead. So it was, it was challenging to go back to it, but also it was also kind of reclaiming this program to make it something safe and fun. Yeah, and then you started associating it with uh, connection to other people, uh, mm. which is, I guess, also uh, like um, in the beginning of um, this October, we had a camp sex conference here in Oslo and we had Dr. David Fawcett here and he talked about people getting to get back together to a sober sex life and how this connectability to other people is what can make these uh, new ways of relating to sex or Zoom uh, worth it or um, possible, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's creating new pathways. That's also why, for example, if you are stopped doing, stop doing drugs and you want to re-engage with things, it, having a safety net is really important. Um, and, and it's also sometimes you have to challenge yourself and go back to not necessarily somewhere where you'd heavy drugs might be involved but go back to that club you used to go to or that um, area of the city you used to go to um maybe with with a friend and so on it, it's just creating new pathways and new positive reinforcement for example last time i was in chicago i ended up on a four-day bender um and that is a place i want to reclaim as a safe space hmm. Last, if I'm going to Berlin, there's particularly one club that I'm, I will never go back to, mm -hmm. uh, at least not for uh, in the foreseeable future, because I did um, a crystal, a smoke crystal meth in the stall there. Uh, but me and, and my hubby, we were um, at a gay wedding in Berlin and we went to another sex club and that was fine. And I was also really satisfied because I was I was just very like, I don't want to drink today. I don't even want that one drink because I know and it was at the lab. So you can have like 1500 guys in there. And I was like, I know I'm going to be facing drugs there. And I just want to be clear headed so that mm -hmm. I can be in touch with my emotions and everything. And so there I could make those new connections, but I, I'm, I'm afraid of going to the other, other sex club because I'm, yeah, I don't trust myself yet.
that do you know what that's an honest thing to say and and there is definitely areas i haven't gone because it's just too triggering and that's even after six years uh, if it's not too personal can i ask how long have you not taken uh, uh, hard drugs now uh it's a couple of years now a couple of years uh, and what 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 brought you to make the decision to stop taking those drugs well, I was never really, um, I come from a kind of um, unstable upbringing, so I never learned how to identify my emotions, the different emotions that I have, or sitting in them. So instead of like feeling things, I got, got anxiety, and then I had sex, or worked out, or did a lot of community activism, or uh, helped all my friends or do like anything but feel that anxiety or connecting with those emotions. So mm. uh, when you don't know yourself, uh, then it's, uh, at least for my part, I didn't take care of myself in chemsex. Um, so I started uh, talking to uh, a very good private psychologist who for um, more than a year, uh, almost every time I met him asked me, how are you and how do you know uh, how, how you're feeling? Where does this sit in your body? So it was just introspect, introspect, introspect. And um, then the kind of goal was to, then I went to another psychologist and we, which was also great. And we decided, okay, you can either have the goal to quit, uh, which is very easy to put yourself up to fail, or you can have like two goals, a long term to quit and a short term to, you know, don't get harmed in camp sex, uh, mm -hmm. which is a more process oriented way of treatment where you can find all these goals on your way to that maybe 10 year in the future um, goal to quit. But I couldn't, I didn't really take good care of myself in camps. And then when I started become better at taking care of myself in camps, I saw, okay, but the frequency is uh, rising much more than I'm comfortable with. Mm. Uh, I can clearly see some addiction things there. Um, and I want to point out, I, my, uh, I didn't say that I don't, my brain doesn't make the association between sex and camps. It's just, I, I said that I don't, never needed to reinvent my sober sex life again, but I can still, um, I'm trying to befriend it, but I can still like be annoyed that uh, if I'm jerking off or even like when I'm having sex to get to the climate point, like can sex fantasies can, can, can arise. Can, can pop into your head. There is, it, even after six years of being sober, that still happens to me. And I will also still have using dreams on occasion. Um, it, it's, it's just part of, kind of part of the, I was about to say the damage of it, but it, it, it is what it is. And the connection is still there. It's just I kind of imagine this pathway in my brain where it's slightly overgrown now. It's not been kept going. So it, but it's still there. You can still sneak through sometimes. And it's just about being mindful about when that happens and what might trigger it. I definitely know when I get using thoughts, it's because I'm stressed. And this is what my brain does, trying to alleviate this anxiety or stress. Um, and my brain just knows, oh, I know how to fix this. So we'll go there. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think like uh, 
when sometimes when I'm working night shifts, uh, that's when I need to uh, block my or delete my grinder for a while because uh, being sleep uh, uh, not having enough sleep uh, can also make it uh, more tempting and make me more vulnerable in all different kinds of senses. You know, I'm more vulnerable to critique or you know I take things personal, but also then. It's easy to that these thoughts come in, with a very high intensity. Um, so for me, also, it's it's about as you say, uh, mindfulness or knowing myself to recognize those situations and kind of be ahead of myself. Fantastic. Um, I, it, it's staring in me, me in the face. So I have to ask, what is the story behind your T-shirt? Oh yeah. Well, as I said, I'm an attention whore. So, like this, the Phoenix Consulate is my channel on X Hamster. So, oh. so I've been dying forever to use this T-shirt, and finally, you gave me an opportunity to do it. Um, it was actually in 2019. I had done um, some chem sex, and I was sitting in, you know, the week after the downtime, and I was like. Right, so if all these kinky shit comes up when I'm uh, high, maybe I should try to explore it while I'm uh, sober. Mm. So I was uh, thinking, who can I ask? And then I, a guy I knew who's kind of like, if you want an example of sex addiction, he's the one. And I was like, he can teach me, he can teach me. And so he, uh, I, I talked to him about, you know, my different fantasies, it was a lot of bareback related breeding it was about domination and um, he helped me put up um, a profile on the Norwegian web page with this title and he also helped me um, being secure in exploring these things for example he told me uh, because I thought it was like really scary and he was like just be honest to your partners that this is scary that this is new for you don't try to be something you're not uh, so he was really amazing guy and kind of like tutoring me up to being a pig. So, uh, and then I've been thinking about it. I think it was just coincidental that a sex partner of mine filmed and I put it online and I got positive feedback. And then I was like looking at other people putting up videos and I was like, but you know, the angle isn't right. You should edit it. You know, there has to be uh, an app. And it, of course, is a lot of apps to edit. And I kind of had a knack for it, probably because I'm good at storytelling, uh, because of my community activism. I've studied some film history and stuff. And then Norway is not like the UK or the States or France or uh, Berlin. So it's, it's not really that much Norwegian porn here now. We, it's more normalized the last year, but it was kind of cool also to get the feedbacks from from people saying, oh, it's so hot, it's in Norwegian, it feels more genuine because it's not something happening over in the UK or in the US. Mm. And, and suddenly I see that, hey, I'm not alone. There are other exhibitionists here who also like to join in, so. It yeah. sounds a lots of, lots of fun and it's, 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 I think it's so important, especially when you when you're engaging with with sober sex, is uh, reinforcement and so on. And 
I've met quite a few sober people who are very sex positive. Um, I sometimes find sex a bit of a weird size for me still um, and kind of getting my head around it. It depends on headspace very much for me. If I'm in the right headspace with the right person, great, go to town. I'm, I'm having a great time. If, it, if, the, if the setting is not right or the person's not quite right, it's not going to work for me. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a process for me. And sometimes I've kind of just gone, this is not working. That sounds healthy. I, I used a lot of years where I kind of like whipped myself like metaphorically because there were so many sexual things that I wanted to do, but I wasn't like mentally ready to do. Mm. And I was so happy the day where I just woke up and realized I'm fine with that. <laughs> and uh, like um, that maybe one thing that I miss with Kems then is because with Kems then you can kind of like override that. But when you're sober, you just have to, you know, be more true to yourself. And okay, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Mm. Um, like I have to be a chairman of an organization means that I don't have a life in certain periods of time, you know, so and that's okay. That has, it's also been a topic for me and therapy. There was a moment where I felt that, okay, um, the movies, the porn, um, and also like um, public, you, you publish it online. And then I use different uh, web platforms to make, ad, make ads for it. Mm -hmm. And then I'm very like focused on if people push the like button or comment, which is also like you want it, it, it feeds the dopamine. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And then I was like, I'm, maybe I'm feeling that it takes too much space. And I talked to my uh, psychologist around it, and it didn't take more than one session with him to just think aloud that, you know, but writing an article or an application or organizing a meeting or being with my friends is also meaningful activities to me and i just need to be mindful that now i want to choose uh between something that's just as good and sometimes more important than the porn yeah it's like with anything else um porn can be addictive especially like yourself is is it's something you publish yourself in um and you do kind of like people crave that like button a little bit sometimes and i get that with myself as well with this podcast the more views or uh listens there are the happier i get but i am also quite aware that this podcast is a very niche niche market because it's kink and sober it, it's it's not a broad audience. So if I get like between 50 to 200 views on YouTube, I'm quite happy. That is quite good. Um, but I also am aware, for example, like stuff like Instagram, where you post pictures for likes and so on. I sometimes go through periods where I'm constantly scrolling and just mm -hmm. that dopamine hit from it. And sometimes I kind of have to go, okay, I have to step back now. It's mm -hmm. a bit much. Yeah, and these uh, systems, whether it's uh, Instagram, Facebook, or X Hamster Pornhub, it's um, kind of like um, um, like systems 
uh, systems that we navigate in in our day-to-day -day life, which are built up like this. And of mm. course, it's always been like that in a sense. This is just how behavior works. Mm. Behavior is driven by certain uh, nature laws, which is about you know positive and negative reinforcement. You do something that gives you something you want, then you do more of it. You do something that get, gets rid of something you don't want, and you will do more of the thing if you have that thing you don't want. Um, so it's a part of being human. And then you, of course, find some capitalist pigs, and I mean pigs in a bad way, uh, <clears throat> who want to exploit on that. So Not um, the good pigs like you. I'm a very good pig. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I'm never, ever going to be on TikTok because uh, I know the algorithms there is too addictive. It, it's a challenge. I'm on there and I mainly just joined because of COVID and I was bored at home. Um, but you, you, if you end up on the wrong side of TikTok, it's quite disturbing. It's, it's amazing what they get away with on there. It's amazing what I get away with sometimes. I don't, don't do anything explicitly sexual, but I do do videos where I'm in gear on, on occasion. Um, mm. So it's, but that's mainly just transition stuff transition videos uh, but it, it is amazing what they get away with on there and it is a little bit scary um so talking about like chem chem friendly as an organization and so on and it started in 18 how was it how was it received in the community in in norway uh very very good uh when we started um we uh, we immediately uh the group that we were had background from uh, the drug and harm reduction, from LGBT sexual health, from HIV, community work, and uh, sex workers' rights. So it was a very like broad cooperation between different uh, fields where we connected into different organizations. Um, we didn't have any funding back then, uh, but there was like a lot of like, when we talked to other queers about it, it was like, yes, this needs to be done. Let's talk about drugs. Uh, and the drag artists uh, in the beginning, they didn't want any money. They just thought it was fun. It was new. They like kind of intuitively understood what we were about. Um, probably because uh, you, it probably happened in the UK as well. But, you know, during the uh, HIV epidemic in the end of the 80s and 90s, then you had the same thing, only with uh, condoms and lubes and safer sex. And now we were just continuing that tradition and talking about safer drug use. So it was a lot of like uh, people wanting to um, uh, uh, contribute uh, voluntarily. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was fun. It felt like uh, this is something that we're doing together as a community. It's it's. Because sometimes when the, the reason I ask that question is sometimes when people hear the word harm reduction, um, some people it can, can it can divide a room quite quickly yeah. because a lot of people kind of think harm reduction. Well, that just gives people a reason to use. And I'm just like, no, harm reduction just means that people won't die hmm. when it's safe practices. It is like if you got they're going to do it no matter what. Let's give them the tools to do it right so they don't hurt themselves. But it's not everyone that agrees with that point of view. No, and I, I don't actually have a problem with people doing drugs either. So, like, there's nothing morally wrong with you if you want to get intoxicated by dancing at a dance floor. 
having sex, uh, drinking alcohol, or shooting meth. So uh, as long as what we do is fact-based, uh, I think that that's the best approach. I think, um, yeah. So I, I uh, but I, I know it can be uh, dividing. And I actually experienced like in international harm reduction for us that even harm reductionist activists took offense with us calling ourselves camp friendly. Um, like even the people who were in the harm reduction uh, communities had a problem with our name. Yeah, it, it, I, I, I probably did a double take when I saw the name, to be honest, but it, it well, we have um, Mr. Friendly or uh, the friend, Team Friendly in the state, which is a, um, um, an HIV organization. Um, and and yes, you can be friendly and and still be into chems and and I I like the name. I think it's 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 inviting. For example, the one we have here, controlling chemsex, is like it's in the name, controlling it, make sure that you're safe and so on. But it's the thing is, you're never going to make everyone happy. Um, no. And I'm I'm quite sure there's probably a couple of people who listen to this podcast think I'm promoting people to do drugs now that that is not the case it is mainly just like if you're still there you're still doing it and you want to do a change but it takes time to do and this is why organizations like yours are so important because if you are in a dark space and you want to get out of it but you can't you're not quite ready to let go of it that is organizations like yours or controlling chemsex here can give you the tools to keep yourself safe and not well harm reduction you don't get harmed yeah but i also think that is important to um agree on what we talk about uh when we say harm reduction mm. or harm prevention which i prefer um mm. like norwegian health authorities kind of get stuck in this idea that harm reduction is handing out user equipment and talking about safer drugs uh, for us, it's also like a principle, uh, mm. overarching principle about uh, nothing about us without us, uh, that we are the experts and, in many ways, and that we should be involved in meaningful ways in policy work, health work, uh, etc., involving queer and sex working drug users. Um, and then as a method, uh, it can be everything from giving out user equipment, talking about safer drug use, at this end of the spectre, but the, and all the way to the other end where it can be drug and rehabilitation uh, services. So there's no, no either or, it's hmm. just a spectre and people will have their needs different places on this uh, spectre. So um, as I said, we had a CAMSEX, two-day CAMSEX conference in the beginning of October. And this is part of our patient advocacy work towards uh, professionals in the uh, drug and rehabilitation system, because we know that there are lots of uh, queer guys who've been addicted to uh, sex on drugs, who've been months in uh, drug and rehabilitation without any possibility of talking about, you know, the reason why I did camps is because I wanted to suck dick. So yeah. we are working to also make uh, the healthcare system more safe uh, for um, uh, <coughs> camp sex participants and queer uh, drug users. But uh, if we go back to the name, <laughs> Come friendly. Um, I think it's also about having uh, a cultural sensitivity, uh, 
especially like if you're working uh, in the healthcare system with queer people, you know, um, drugs and chemsex and chems is a part of uh, queer, at least Western queer history. Parties are an important part of our history and a lot of our lives. Um, Not every single individual, but you can't talk about our history without also mentioning the role of parties and uh, intoxication, whether it's intoxication because of dancing at rave parties or doing drugs or having sex. Mm. It's, it's, It's such an integrate part of gay life is going partying or clubbing or so on it's it's I think because now I'm almost getting I'm, I'm turning 40 next year all of a sudden the parties are less than it used to be but also I don't do drugs and alcohol anymore so staying out a whole night can be quite difficult um so it's 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 a different way of being now um but it, it is such a big part of what is to be gay or part of the LGBTQ plus community. And like when you talk about involving everyone and everyone like uh, how you approach someone who is a drug user or uh, part of the community, I've definitely had my own experience of that uh, where I've had a, a, a therapist I was allocated who was a straight man where I try to explain BDSM to him. Um, you almost see his eyes light up. He's like, oh my God, I can write a book about this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, when, you, when you're in that vulnerable position, you don't want to explain the lingo to mm. someone. No, not, definitely not. So as uh, the topics that have been at our chemsex conferences, for example, this year, it was... Exactly. One of the topics, uh, one of the lectures was how are BDSM practitioners being uh, experienced being met by healthcare professionals Mm. Uh, and where the speaker uh, gave, you know, uh, broadly, how are BDSM people represented in the media? uh, What are the stereotypes and what are the consequences? What are the situation around diagnostics, etc.? Um, and then we uh, talked about relationship anarchism uh, because, you know, monogamy is not for everyone. And often in um, when it comes to chemical sex rehabilitation, you know, the goal is to get back to a healthy sexuality, which if you're coming from a heteronormative stance will typically be monogamy. So, mm. you know, to challenge these assumptions and we also had a brilliant uh, psychologist uh i love that's called joe court um from the uh, from the states at our first campsite conference and you know you just get so inspired when he talks about all sexual diversity right and he was very like talking about uh, and we have this talk at our in our youtube channel about how um healthcare practitioners can work to get to know their biases and as he says, you don't need to understand or like anything, but you need to hide your disgust reaction. Otherwise, you lose the trust of the patient right away. Mm. Uh, and of course, just uh, teaching the healthcare professionals why sexuality is important in the first place. It, it reminds me, and it's completely off, off kilter, but uh, it reminds me of when um, I went to uh, International Mr. Lever back in 2009 when I competed 
but they had a specific person come in and teach the cleaning staff what yeah. to expect to see in the rooms. Yeah, yeah. That it's that kind of thinking you have to implement on healthcare providers as well, because mm. the amount of times I've had to explain what prep is at this yeah, point exactly. to a nurse or a doctor. And I was like, well, this is because I like cum in my hole. So I need to take this medication so I don't become positive. But you don't want to be that graphic with them. Uh, well, I do. But uh, I'm starting to learn that not everyone ha are filterless like me. Um, but yeah, it's a sorry state. I was um, in an, a, a place called Stavanger, uh, meeting a lover I had there um, for just a sex weekend. And uh, I missed when I fucked him. And suddenly there was like blood everywhere. Okay. So it was a heaven, pro heaven to hell situation where I ended up at the emergency ward. Uh, so luckily my dick wasn't broken. So there was no pain or anything. Like I was at the hospital for one night and I uh, was bored. So I jerked off. Like everything worked fine. Um, but the day after, a urologist came there and he like explained to me that, you know, it wasn't broken, blah, blah, blah. And uh, then okay you can go and i was like what about sex i'm here because of a problem related to sex what mm. about sex that was not in his mind at all and i just think that says something about uh society's relationship to, to sex when a urologist having a patient who's in there because of a damage related to sex it, it didn't cross his mind to say you need to wait so so many days before you're having sex no yeah, it's it's every time I've gone to I've been going to the same clinic health sexual health clinic here in London since I moved here, and I've always gone in with the the mind of I'm going to be honest of what my sexual practices are and so on, um, but I I my 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 former partners who also went to the clinic were like oh no no we filter what we say to them it's like we don't want to give them all the details and it's like well they can give you the right treatment if you're not being completely 100% honest with what you're doing exactly uh, and like um, and there's of course differences between cities so like I had friends who've gotten like dildos and, and stuff stuck up their ass and gone to the emergency ward in, in Oslo no problem they're like super professional. They've seen it before, right? But back to my story in, uh, in the Stavanger, the other city, they were like, what's that? What do you call that ring around your penis? You know, a penis ring. <laughs> and then suddenly a nurse was there to check me out, taking it off. So it was like, I felt like I was like a little museum animal doing some, showing them some new stuff. So, yeah, but that's uh, another reason why I think that as queer people, as queer um, guys, we should be mindful that uh, our uh, habits of fucking around, how we fuck around, uh, where we fuck around, how we communicate the language we use is culture. Uh, it's things, uh, actions, rituals, things that we do together. Uh, the equipment, like the fetish gear that you're wearing, you've mm -hmm. spent your money as a consumer to realize your identity as a fetish queer together with thousands of other guys. 
uh, and that this is something that defines our life and our place in a bigger whole, and I think like in, a, in the universe, right? So um, I think we should be more mindful and part of that uh, so that we don't feel diminished when we meet uh, prejudice in society, but can actually defend it proudly. Um, and I'm really annoyed every time people in the healthcare system say, we're minority competent because they never think about queer minority sexual cultures or sex workers, sex cultures and stuff. Yeah, it's it's because it's such a broad spectrum. And, and I also think as as, uh, as, a, as a queer community, LGBTQ plus community, we are more sexually liberated, but it also, I think it comes from being told constantly that we are wrong. We are the other. We are abnormal we are not a part of nature which is absolute bullshit um mm. but so it comes i think a lot of fetish men um like me it comes from defiance it's mm. like you cannot tell me that it has to be this vanilla thing over here i know i'm gonna do this because this is my identity this is what i enjoy and we're much more liberated it's just the rest of the world kind of has to come keep up with us sometimes. Yeah, that's uh, queer people's gift to the world is that we have think out of that box. And that is something that we can give to society. Absolutely. So just to talk about your exhibitionist, we talked a little bit about you posting videos online. Where does your exhibitionist side come from? And when did you start like, oh, I like being a little bit more out with my sexuality? I have no idea where it comes from. Um, I think um, it was a friend of mine who's a kinkster and he gave me just a very good advice once because he had been to uh, talking to a psychologist and he was thinking, talking about why do I like all these things that I do, all these fetishes. And his psychologist had just asked him, do you like what you do? Are you comfortable with it? And he said, yes. And then his psychologist said, then does it matter where it comes from? And I think like, I don't care where it comes from. I just know that it is. And when I started thinking about it, like since I moved to Oslo in 2006 and made a profile on this Norwegian um, webpage for, for gays and queers, there's different kinds of forums. And I've always been putting out my pictures of my naked body and my cock and everything there. So it has just um, been kind of like growing and growing and I've been more secure in it um, as the years have gone by. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, we, we're kind of coming to the end of our time. Um, it's been absolutely joy to talk to you about the organization, <laughs> talking to you, um, learning a little bit more about you. Um, if anyone's listened or watched um, and they've connected with something you've said, where can they get a hold of you or the organization? Oh, thank you for that question. So, Ken uh, Friendly, we have a webpage. Uh, we are publishing more and more English articles. Uh, so among all the Norwegian articles, you will find English articles. We have our Instagram account, camfriendly underscore uh, Norge, um, which uh, every, almost everything we post there is in English. Uh, and we also have a Facebook page, so where people can reach us. 
Fantastic, fantastic. Is there any advice you would give someone just to round the episode off? Like a really good piece of advice you got you might want to pass on to someone else? Well, uh, I am just so uh, happy that those two amazing psychologists that I told you about taught me that um, if I'm afraid to talk to my friends or others that I love about, you know, things that I'm not proud of or things that I'm afraid I will be shunned of, then I'm denying myself intimacy, true intimacy every time I'm not speaking. And that every time that I am sharing, I am giving myself true intimacy. So talk to the people that you love and that love you. They, they are accepting of the whole package of you, not only the best of you. Fantastic. That is a really nice thing to round off on. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the talk. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That was this week's episode. Um, it was lovely to have Andreas on. And I am sad to say I am going to round this season off with this episode. Um, so I'm cutting it two episodes short, but it's mainly because I don't have time at the moment. Um, so I will be back next year with uh, a new round of episodes with new guests. Stay safe, stay clear headed and go out and have some fun. Bye. Thank you.